And the gambling commission has now decided if you reduce your cinema going because you've decided to spend some money on gambling, then you have been harmed. If you feel like a failure, you are harmed. I mean, I feel like a failure most days of my life, but if you feel like a failure, you are somehow harmed. Uh, if you spend less time with loved ones, you are harmed. Now, these are tests which pretty much any activity would fail. Um, and yet this is where the Gambling Commission has chosen to take its, its threshold for harm. Hello there, hello there. This is Christopher Snowden. You are watching yet another episode of The Swift Half with Snowden, the 30-minute TV, YouTube interview type show in which I speak to somebody I think you'll find interesting. You sometimes have heard of them, you sometimes haven't. But rest assured, I've always heard of them, and I know that they've always got something useful and interesting to say. Um, this week, we have a man called Dan War, who um, uh, is, is uh, a, a bigger expert than uh, gambling than anybody else I know. What he what he doesn't know about gambling isn't worth knowing. There was recently a white paper published about gambling, so it's a bit of a hot topic. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. Yeah, good. Thanks. Do you want to just introduce yourself to uh, to our audience? Because I know you've done a, you've done various different things. Yeah, so I'm, I've been a partner at a firm called Regulus Partners for the past nine years. We're a research firm and we provide advisory services based on our research. And we really only do regulated gambling markets. Um, before that, I worked in the industry uh, with a company called The Rank Group, which runs casinos and bingo clubs for nine years. Um, and I was also chair, founding chair of a charity which provides youth education around risks of gambling to school children. Okay, now this white paper that's come out. So this is the not quite the culmination, but it's the next staging post in quite a long process that began um, virtually in middle, well in the middle of the pandemic, December twenty twenty. There was a sort of call for evidence, open ended consultation, asking people what they thought should be done about gambling. And then I think we got through. I believe I'm right in saying ten gambling ministers <laughs> before the the white paper was published. So what's in the white paper, and why should people care about it? Yeah, well, the, the history actually goes a bit a bit further than that because the review was first launched. Bizarrely enough, by Matt Hancock as culture uh, as health secretary back in 2019 as a Conservative Party manifesto pledge, and then we had to wait another year for the white paper for the uh, call for evidence, which is what you mentioned. Uh, in the white paper, which finally emerged last month, we have 17 key policy proposals, uh, as well as some uh, many other minor ones. And I'll run through just a few uh, just to give you a flavour, but we've got um, affordability checks, which will uh, require um, a certain proportion of online gamblers to uh, pass checks in order to prove that they are uh, able to gamble within their means. We will have staking limits for online slots games. We will have um, uh, a gambling commission review of other structural characteristics for online games, such as speed of play. Uh, we'll have the institution of a new tax um, on operators in order to fund treatment, research and education services uh, and the creation of a new public body, an ombudsman to ensure that consumers are dealt with fairly. Uh, and there are some also some more positive changes. So casinos and bingo clubs are in line to get sort of more um, modern uh, product entitlements that enable them to compete more effectively with online operators. Okay, so the, the the big ones that have kind of made the headlines have been the affordability checks, I suppose to some extent the, the stake limits on online slots and the levy. So let's take them one at a time. So affordability checks. Um, I mean, the industry already does this to, to a large extent. We're talking here mainly about online gambling, I should say. Um, 
I'm not telling you that, Dan, I'm telling the, telling the audience, um, but it's mainly you know, the, the panic at the moment is about online gambling. So the online firms do have a lot of ways of kind of tracing, well, tracing their play, you know, players play and, and spotting hazardous patterns of play and so on. But what the government's looking at, as the campaigners have called for, is effectively a threshold of how much you can lose every day or every month. And at that point, the industry is supposed to intervene and do checks. But I'm not very clear, and I don't think the government is very clear about what these checks are, how they're going to be carried out, and indeed, what happens if you fail the check. Have you got any any idea of what they've, they've got in mind? Oh, no, I mean, well, is it workable? Um, I, I think something is workable, whether it's effective or not, and whether it causes more problems than it solves is still open to question. And with a lot of stuff in the white paper, you know, having waited um, quite a long time to get to this point, there's still an awful lot of the detail that's yet to be resolved by various consultations. So where we are at the moment is that the government proposes what they call light touch checks for anybody who spends uh, in excess of £125 in any given month. Okay, now those light touch checks we believe are going to be unobtrusive things so so uh, searches using uh, open source data to find out for example whether the person has a county court judgment against their name and things like that um when the uh, for, for customer spending more than that in, in um different periods so a thousand pounds in a day or two thousand pounds in an uh in a 90-day period uh those checks may be more um uh, aggressive or more intrusive uh, and in some cases, they will require operators to request highly sensitive and personal and private documents from their customers. So, for example, bank statements or tax returns uh, or P60s. Um, you're right, there is this already goes on and this goes on a number of ways um, already. Uh, operators use various data analytics to try to identify risky patterns of play. Uh, and they will provide certain interventions at different thresholds, but those thresholds are not standardized, which partly reflects the fact that what we're looking at here is fairly complex, uh, fairly complex disorder that we're trying to trying to spot. And so hard and fast rules are not necessarily sensitive enough to be able to spot whether somebody's gambling in a, in a harmful fashion. We also have a situation where the market regulator, the Gambling Commission, has sort of been quietly and behind closed doors providing coercion to get operators to conduct these checks at lower levels. And in fact, sometimes at lower levels than that the government is proposing. Um, but yeah, ultimately what we're looking at is, is surveillance, potentially ultimately fairly large numbers of consumers uh, in order to prove that they can um, gamble within their means. So let's say I, I spend 125 pound, I lose 125 pound, um, not net even is it i don't know is it uh no it is net yeah it is net okay so overall in the course of a month i lose 125 pounds online gambling which i have done several times in my life and a lot of gamblers will think nothing of that kind of loss you'd hope to make it back the next month perhaps you already made more than that the previous month and so on but the bottom line is you've crossed that threshold all right let's say i've crossed that threshold Back in my past, I had a CCJ. A lot of people have had a CCJ. Maybe I've had a, a business go bust. A lot of people have had that as well. So I've then failed this affordability check. So what's the next stage? Do I then go on to the next affordability check when I start, start having to show bank statements? Well, we don't know. So I think um, uh, th this is always going to be at the thin end of a wedge in that 
you're trying to standardize thresholds, but then you, you, as you point out, you rightly say, well, what happens at those thresholds? And different operators will do different things. So then it leads the gambling commission to say, well, actually we need to standardize the interactions as well. So um, at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen. I think the, the really concerning thing here is, is not so much what happens in the near term. I think what happens in the near term may be relatively modest. But what the commission, what the DCMS is doing here, it is giving powers to the Gambling Commission. It's creating powers for the Gambling Commission to determine how much people are allowed to spend on gambling before they have to face checks. And there is nothing stopping the Gambling Commission revising those thresholds or, or, or indeed, as you suggest, coming back and insisting that the actions have to be standardised. So at certain levels, um, there is a rule for you as, with somebody with a county court judgment about what you can or cannot do. Um, so I think there's going to be an awful lot of confusion. The consultation is run by the Commission. The Commission has a pretty shoddy track record when it comes to consultations. And what I mean by that is it it consults on lots, it, it runs consultations on lots of things in order to change the regulation. It almost always does what it first thought of, regardless of the evidence it's submitted. And it never that does tend to be the way with public consultations in general, to be fair. Yeah, except I think where government runs them, they're a bit more open. So we get to scrutinise. The government actually has this slightly old fashioned idea that you should explain why you're imposing laws on, on the citizenry, which the Gambling Commission feels no compunction about. The Gambling Commission is quite happy to make up new rules and uh, not explain uh, itself. I think it's, it's sort of dictum is uh, never explain, never apologise. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so I think we're, what we're seeing here, I think in in the in the short term, we'll see some confusion around this. And the confusion will be that different operators are doing different things to different customers. Um, well, they already are, right? They already are. They already are. And in, in a way, that's part of the justification for the government doing mm. what it's doing. It's saying these things are already happening, so why not standardise? There's a logic to that. But then, as you point out, it then leads on to the next model, and then a need to standardise that. And before too long, we have a highly prescriptive set of rules uh, which are going to uh, potentially be highly intrusive on consumers and and you know present a threat to their freedoms and i guess part of the issue here is a lot of people in this country will have relatively little sympathy for gamblers but what we're doing here is creating a precedent that could be applied to lots of things over time anything that the dhsc in its infinite wisdom decides to label a public health issue may in time be subject to these sorts of surveillance measures i think one of the things that 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 has led to perhaps a fairly sanguine response from the industry on this is that it is a modest threat by comparison with what others have proposed. So back in 2020, uh, the Gambling Commission tried to sort of tried had an attempt to sort of push on this um, gambling act review. It tried to railroad through a system where anybody spending £100 a month would have to, uh, by law, provide uh, bank statements and tax returns. So we're seeing a sort of watered down version of the Gambling Commission proposals, which is why I think there's not been more alarm. We also had um, to give you an idea about, and, and you know, you and I have talked about this. There are some very odd people who decide to engage in discourse on the on the gambling debate. One of those very odd people is Ian Duncan Smith, who proposed through his um, his Centre for Social Justice back in 2020 that anybody spending any money on any gambling activity should be um, should have to make the state should have to give the state access to their bank accounts. And should also submit to geolocation tracking. So if you wanted to, to spend £5 uh, in the 
uh, arcade at the Grand Pier in Brighton, you would have to give the state access to your bank accounts in order to do that. And you would have to submit to tracking. So I, I think in a way, you know, what I'm saying is that th th these are concerning. The real concerns is where this where this goes to, not the immediate impact, I think. Okay, all right. Um, let's just briefly talk about the Gambling Commission, because um, it seems to me that the, the idea of creating a new ombudsman kind of is a tacit admission that the Gambling Commission is not up to the job. And a lot of people on both sides of this debate have said that the Gambling Commission isn't really up to the job. I suppose the anti-gambling people think that they're not dishing out quite big enough fines, even though there's been some incredibly big fines in the last few years. Um, and people like yourself think that it's been a bit too, well, it's been taken over by by activists, would it be fair to say? It seems to be pursuing its own agenda. What's, what's been going on there in recent years? So I think there's a, there's a big event happening in 2016 that passed a lot of people by at the time. But uh, there was a changing of guard at the commission, and we had a very good chief executive called Jenny Williams and a very good chair called Philip Graff. And they both retired within a fairly short space of uh, time of each other. Um, Philip Graff was replaced by a chap called Bill Moyes. Now, Bill Moyes came from a public health background. I think he's chair of the General Dental Council. He was also uh, one of the most senior lay figures in the Catholic Church in Great Britain. Now, I, I, I'm a Catholic, and actually, as, as religions go, Catholic Catholicism is is a bit more friendly towards gambling than certain other religions. But even so, somebody with very devout, you know, deep religious convictions and activism within activity within uh, a major or, uh, religious organization was appointed to oversee the gambling uh, market. And that seemed to me to be a very odd appointment. And I think what we saw was we saw at that point, this sort of revival of moralism uh, within a regulatory body. Uh, the Gaming Board of Great Britain, which predated the Gambling Commission in its latter years and also uh, the Gambling Commission itself in its first decade was morally neutral on the subject of gambling. It saw its job was to maintain the effective um, operation of a functioning gambling market in this country and to do so in the best interest of, of consumers. I think in 2016 we start to see the rise of moralism in um, it, it, within the gambling regulator. Uh, we all know that moralism is sort of meant to be out of fashion uh, in a secular society so it then gets cloaked in something else and the thing it gets cloaked in is public health yeah from 2016 onwards uh we see this rise of this sort of infiltration of public health radicalism into our, our gambling regulator and to give you a few instances of that you know i've, I've talked about this attempt to impose 100 pound spending caps on its cons on consumers um it's also defined a, a, and you've pointed that out very well in some of the stuff you've written but it's also <laughs> really radically changed the threshold for what should be considered harms so in addition to you know there are some genuinely harmful terrible things that happen to people who uh, are gambling in a disordered fashion um not all not necessarily caused but certainly involved with their gambling um but to add to that you know the gambling commission has now decided if you reduce your cinema going because you've decided to spend some money on gambling that you have been harmed if you feel like a failure you are harmed. I mean, I feel like a failure most days of my life. But if you feel like a failure, you are somehow harmed. Uh, if you spend less time with loved ones, you are harmed. Now, these are tests which pretty much any activity would fail. Uh, and yet this is where the Gambling Commission has chosen to take its, its threshold for harm. They're also uh, they, they can close a consultation in January. And it's in one interesting aspect of here is that we think the white paper should be comprehensive because it's part of a, a review by the government, but there's lots of other stuff that's been happening outside of this white paper. And one of those was a consultation that closed in January where the commission is redefining vulnerability because the Gambling Act requires operators 
to protect vulnerable people. But in the act, it's very clear it's talking about people who are genuinely vulnerable, who, you know, who have real issues that are going to make them particularly at risk of, of harmful gambling. Well, the commission is seeking to subvert that by saying you are vulnerable if you are a young adult. You're also vulnerable if you're an older adult. You're vulnerable if you have dyslexia. You're vulnerable if you have low literacy or numeracy skills. You're vulnerable if you have higher than standard levels of trust or appetite for risk. So what they're doing is saying everyone's vulnerable. And once you do that, you, you change the meaning of the, the gambling legislation such that every single customer needs to be um, looked after, needs to be nannied in this way. Um, and, and so you move from a system where you know, the, the Gambling Act is designed to let the vast majority of recreational gamblers pursue their enjoyment in, in the way they see fit, but also to provide appropriate protections for people who could do themselves harm. And the GC is now turning that on, it, on its head and saying, no, everybody's vulnerable. We need to protect everybody. Um, and we have no interest in, in whether this uh, has a negative impact on people's lives. I didn't know that the Gambling Commission actually endorsed this idea that if you spend money on gambling, you could have spent it on something else and therefore it's a form of harm. I, I first came across that just a few weeks ago, an editorial in the British Medical Journal by a bunch of public health people who know nothing about gambling, as far as I can see. And yeah, they literally said that. They said, you know, people spending money on gambling could be spending it on healthy products. Therefore, it's harming their health to gamble. And of course, you can apply that to virtually any form of um, uh, you know, market, market exchange. So th this is what I want to get onto um, is the, the public health kind of takeover of gambling. I find it very interesting and it brings us to the, the levy, I think. So, I mean, I've been following, I haven't been following gambling as long as you have, but I've been following it for over a decade and I've read quite a lot of research and I've always been struck, generally speaking, by how good the research is. There's a fairly small band of people involved in it. It's a quite a niche area, but the people who do it, people like Mark Griffiths and Jonathan Park, you know, they, they, they seem to take it seriously. It's pretty robust. It's quite nuanced because the, the issue is complex. And then a few years ago, we started seeing public health people. Um, get involved in it. People who had never written about gambling before had only ever written about tobacco or alcohol or, or sugary drinks and so on. And they bring all the same policies to the table, try and crowbar them in to, to a market which simply it doesn't, doesn't fit. The stuff doesn't fit. And they are much more aggressive in, in the way they go about things. They say, you know, the industry is the problem. People don't have individual responsibility. It's all an industry myth that people do. And essentially, all the research that has come before us is suspect because some of it they imply all of it but some of it was funded by the gambling industry which in actual fact they mean gamble aware which is an independent charity which is in turn is is funded by the the gambling industry and has always been genuinely independent as far as i can see but there's this sort of year zero approach to this now whereby there's there's the past where we had these researchers looking at these issues and coming up with kind of fairly nuanced policy proposals um and viewing gambling disorder as what it is a psych psychological disorder and now there is the public health way and it's got nothing to do with individuals it's all to do with the environment the, in the environment is created by the industry and the government needs to, to regulate the environment we, and the reason i say it, it this brings the levy into it is because this levy is going to create something like 100 million pounds a year for as you say research education and treatment but the treatment is the last of those three for a reason i think which is that you know even if five or ten percent of that money goes towards research then it's a huge windfall for a lot of people in public health to be building their little empires um which will effectively be 
advocacy organizations yeah it's not a question it's more of a statement i guess but no i agree with you entirely i mean when i was first involved in this in this space uh there were a lot of very good researchers we had decent research conferences in this country and people genuinely are trying to grapple with what is a truly complex issue you know what gambling disorder is highly highly complex as indeed are most psychiatric disorders uh we've moved from that i think to a place where um a lot of researchers are simply trying to impose an ideology um on on, on this government and on, on people in this country um and there's a lack of scientific inquiry there is a sort of bizarre belief that gambling is a new tobacco which doesn't even have to be stated and that's you know the levy comes from a place of saying you can't uh you must institute a levy because you can't have the gambling industry voluntarily funding research because because that's what big tobacco did so no evidence is advanced to suggest that there's been any corruption of research by uh the gambling industry it's just taken as read that that's what big tobacco did so therefore gambling must do it um yeah an awful lot of the research now is truly abysmal um i uh, I, I read a report the other day which claimed uh, from a think tank and and this claims that uh, if you have won 500 pounds or more from gambling in the last two years and if you are economically inactive due to physical uh, to, to, due, due to ill health you are now an at-risk gambler so you've won 500 pounds and you can't gamble because you've got a, you can't you, you can't you're not employed because you've got a disability that is enough now to define people as at-risk gamblers according to some some uh, groups so we're seeing incredible dishonesty and and uh, another one actually and probably the most baleful example because it's state funded it's taxpayers paying for this we had two reports uh from within the dhsc we had public health england's report which i know you've written about in 2021 on the social and eco economic cost of gambling and then we had a revised version of that report from the office for health improvement and disparities in January this year. And these are the reports that come up with claims of between one and two billion of social and economic costs. And most importantly, this claim of somewhere between 100 and 500 suicides each year uh, associated with problem gambling. Now, these reports are utterly made up. They're invented uh, and they've admitted that. they've The reason that OHID had to produce a new report in January 2023 20, was they finally admitted that PHE had got things terribly wrong in the first report, but they then created a whole new slew of errors in there. So if you if you sort of believe these figures, you know the only way you can believe the OHID report is to believe that psychiatric um, health has nothing to do with self harm and risk of suicide, which is absurd. But this is the stuff that's being peddled, and it is mendacious. And in the in the instance of those two reports. It is shocking that this is being done at the taxpayers' expense. And it's also, you know, the Gambling Commission's complicit in a lot of this. They produce some extraordinarily dishonest research. Um, and as things stand, there's a, you know, unless there's really strong governance under this levy, it will be a, uh, I think as you've described it, a slush fund for prohibitionists. Yeah, let's just talk about this suicide issue quickly, because I know it's something you've, you've written about, I've written about it as well. Uh, it, it's classic Public Health England rubbish uh really um but i mean as a prelude i should probably say that well why are they focusing so much on, on suicide i think if you look back to the fixed odds betting terminal campaign which is the last big anti-gambling push in this country not that long ago um you 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 always get a lot of kind of you know 
um, sad stories, anecdotes, people saying, you know, I lost my house, I lost a huge amount of money, I did this and that, you know, rather than use empirical evidence, of which there isn't a great deal, uh, it does tend to focus and the, and the media do tend to seek out people who've lost a lot of money and had a hard time as, as problem gamblers. But it was in, in that campaign, it was many, many just people losing a lot of money, whereas mm. this current campaign seems to be very heavily focused on, on suicides. And so Public Health England decided to come up with a a figure, an estimate of the number of gambling-related suicides, whatever that may mean. And go on, tell us, tell us how they went about it, because it's really extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit technical when you get into it, so I'll have to try and keep it as simple as I can, because otherwise I can get lost. But they relied on a study from Sweden that was conducted on Swedish hospital patients between 2006 and 2016. And of 2,100 patients that were diagnosed with gambling disorder, they found that 21 had died by suicide. And so they said, and this is actually a very good piece of research, by the way, they said that, you know, what we're seeing here amongst the sample we've reviewed, uh, the chances of dying by suicide were 15 times greater than your average Swedish citizen who's not in hospital. Right. So there's a few what what PHENO then does is, OK, let's take that 15 times multiplier and apply it to anybody in England who uh, is maybe classified from from survey information, maybe classified as uh, a problem gambler. Now, there's a few things wrong with this, the way they do it. And, and that's where they get their, their, their very big figures from. Um, the people in the, in the Swedish study had gambling disorder, which is a recognized psychiatric, psychiatric disorder. Problem gambling is not. Problem gambling is a subclinical classification. So basic problem gambling is you're gambling in a way that's not very good for you. But it's not a psychiatric disorder. OK, and maybe the way to think about this in, in sort of these are not perfect analogies, but you know, are you alcohol dependent versus do you drink more than 14 units a week? Or are you clinically obese versus are you overweight? It's these sorts of orders of magnitude that we're dealing with. And it's absurd to suggest that somebody with a recognized psychiatric condition has the same mortality and health risks as somebody who doesn't, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the study in Sweden was people in hospital. Now, very few people receive treatment for gambling disorder in hospital. Most gambling disorder treatment is done run by clinics. OK, so if you're in hospital receiving treatment for gambling disorder, and by the way, it's not clear they all were. They, they just no, not at all. They were just tested for it. Yes, yeah, exactly. But it's likely you're you're you know, if you are in there because of the gambling disorder, it's likely you're an extreme case. OK, so, for example, there are um, the clinics in this country, in this country, uh, treat about 9000 people for gambling disorder every year. Hospitals treat about 300. So, you know, the, you're, you're dealing with a, an extreme sample here. The second thing is, as, as you know, they weren't necessarily in hospital for gambling disorder and gambling disorder was not the only thing that was wrong in their life. So 60 percent had anxiety disorder, 50 percent had depression. 41% had substance use disorders, 29% had alcohol use disorders, large proportions had diseases of the respiratory tract, um, musculoskeletal system, ear, nose and throat. So these were very, very sick people in both mentally and physically. And what OHID does is said, we're going to take, we're going to assume the mortality risk for people with all these things that, that are making them ill, wide variety of things making them ill, should apply to people in the general population in England who have none of these things. So it basically says we do not believe that there is any link between risk of self-harm and your general physical and mental health or the severity of these things. It's absurd. And they, and they know it's absurd. 
Um, and even and actually one, one thing that's interesting is the Gambling Commission in 2022, we, we went to see them and talked to them about this because they'd endorsed the report. And we pointed out all of these things in them. And the Gambling Commission, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you've got a point. They then said they'd go away and contact uh, OHID and, and see whether they could gain some enlightenment on this because the report was also very opaque. They hid a lot of stuff. And then we chased up with the Gambling Commission. They said they were too busy. So at that point, we put in a Freedom of Information Act request. And we got a lot of documents back. And one of the documents got back showed that the Gambling Commission had conducted its own review after we'd seen them. And the Gambling Commission concluded that the PHE's estimates, uh, that its whole approach to estimating suicidality was wrong. They said it was inaccurate. And they said there is no reliable data that you can base these calculations on. But the Gambling Commission then decided to keep shtum about that. It did not tell the government that, of that view. And it allowed this discourse around, you know, widespread mortality related to gambling to, to spread and I, just a one one sort of final point that's worth again trying to make this more relevant to the generalist um the way that ohid does this the way that ohid says oh you know x many deaths associated with with problem gambling you know you could do the same for poundland you could do exactly the same calculation that says people who shop in poundland that you know x many suicides each year are related to shopping in poundland because what you're looking at here is correlation. You're looking at health risks related to people who do certain things. And we know that problem gambling, for example, is overweighted amongst people on lower incomes because people on lower incomes are more financially stressed generally. Psychiatric disorders in general are weighted towards people on lower incomes. So what you're looking at here is correlation. So I say that you, there is, you could run exactly the same calculation that OHID's calculated for Poundland. And come up with a similar answer that that uh, Poundland is associated with X many hundred deaths a year. And by the way, I'm not saying Poundland is. Um, so no, just to, to make that clear, but it, legally that's, safe. That's, yeah. the, that's the sort of voodoo research that we're up against here. Yeah, junk science in public health. Whatever next, Dan. We're out of time. Thanks very much for all your insights speaking to us today. Thank you very much at home for watching another episode of the Swift Alpha Snowden. And thank you particularly if you're a donor to the IEA. If you'd like to become one, iea.org.uk slash donate is a place to go. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chris.